Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, we've got Executive Editor Tish Hamilton's interview with Jenny Hadfield, author of our uber-popular web column, Ask Coach Jenny. Then in the kick, a pretty spectacular marathon performance in Dubai. But first, my moonshot. This will be the first in an occasional series on my attempt to finally run a Boston qualifier this spring. But we won't be documenting my typical training buildup, trust me. For this attempt, I have a bit of an unfair advantage. Access to some of the greatest minds in the sport and their extremely data-centric approach to training. It all starts with a very uncomfortable treadmill run. Come on, mate. 45 seconds gone, that's a quarter of the way through. Go for as long as you can. Okay. You can't make it hands on the side and stop. So stick around and thanks for joining us. So, like lots of runners, I have dreamed of running the Boston Marathon for years. For 10 years, in fact. It's partly because of its history. Boston was started in 1897. And it's also partly because running Boston is a badge of honor. You have to earn your way there by running a qualifying time based on your gender and age. The heralded and, for me, elusive Boston qualifier, or BQ. I took my first shot at a BQ in 2007 at the Austin Marathon. I needed to finish in under three hours and 20 minutes to qualify. I had a really good day until the final few miles when hamstring cramps kicked in. I finished in 324, which was a nine-minute PR and just four minutes shy of my goal. I felt like I had taken a great first step onto a ladder that felt very climbable. I didn't know it at the time, but it turns out I was already at the top. I'll spare you too many race recaps and skip ahead to my most recent BQ attempt at the 2013 Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. One of the few great things about getting older as a runner is that the Boston qualifying standards actually get a little easier the older you get. You basically get an extra five minutes every five years, like when you turn 45, as I did that year. So that time I needed a 325, which I had already broken several years back. I was exactly on pace halfway through and dialed into my plan to keep the 325 pace group right in front of me until mile 20. Then I would reel them in on my way to a triumphant negative split finish. Instead, while crossing the 14th Street Bridge, my momentum ceased in a way that is familiar to anyone who has ever driven a car into a tree. I finally finished in 339, 14 minutes shy of my BQ. So in six years of striving, I had gotten 10 minutes farther from my goal. Even worse, I was burned out and dejected by this vicious marathon cycle I was stuck in. Trained for months, get my hopes up, crash and burn on race day with a few miles to go, then a year or two later, repeat. It was so demoralizing. This quest that was supposed to be joyful instead felt futile. So I figured a BQ wasn't in the cards for me, at least not until I turned, I don't know, 80 And I focused on other goals, like the mile and triathlons. Then, over the summer, I heard about Nike's plans to work with some of its athletes to break the two-hour marathon barrier, which the company was framing legitimately as a, quote, moonshot. Joe Taylor, who works in communications at Nike, asked me if I had a moonshot that I might like to attempt at the same time. She said I would have access to the same experts and innovations that would help some of the best runners in the world run 26.2 miles faster than anyone ever had. Naturally, I saw this as a pretty unique opportunity to make a fresh start and probably my best chance to finally BQ. So that's my moonshot. Earn my way into the 2018 Boston Marathon. I'll turn 50 this year, which means my BQ now is 3 hours and 30 minutes. Although qualifying for Boston and getting an entry for the race are two different things. Last year, because of BQ fever, Hopefuls needed to run two minutes and nine seconds faster than their qualifying times to get in. So if I really want to find out what it's like to kick down Boylston Street on Patriots Day, I'll probably need to run a 327. Yes, that is 12 minutes faster than my last marathon. But I'm going to benefit from the team of coaches, scientists, and product designers 
who are pushing the boundaries of human performance. I will train harder and, more importantly, smarter than ever before. This time, I hope, will be different. This time, I will do everything right and, in the process, become the ultimate marathoning guinea pig. Throughout my BQ quest, I aim to discover and share what regular runners can learn from cutting-edge science and from the fastest marathoners in the world. So, I hope you'll be able to use these insights in your own moonshots, whatever they may be. But first, to the beginning, literally. To begin building the right training program for me, we had to get a clear and an honest assessment of where I was starting from, fitness-wise. So step one was going to Nike headquarters outside Portland, Oregon in late November and submitting to a very uncomfortable test in the top secret innovation kitchen, a place that very few journalists or Nike employees for that matter are allowed to see. Here, Andy Jones, a professor of applied physiology at the University of Exeter and a consultant on the Breaking Tube project, explains exactly what they were going to subject me to. Yeah, so um, we're doing a multi-stage treadmill test today. So um, we start him off at a nice easy speed and the athlete will do seven or eight stages each of three minutes duration, progressively faster speeds. And it gives us, you know, within around half an hour, everything that we need to know about them. We get their running economy, we get their blood lactate profiles, heart rates at each of the speeds, maximal oxygen uptake. So uh, all of the key things for performance. And we'll, then we'll be able to determine what their performance capability is at the moment and uh, offer some advice on what training might be beneficial to improve certain facets of their physiology. Now I better go and do it. Yeah. <laughs> so here's how the test worked. They started the treadmill at 9 kilometers per hour, which is 10 minutes and 44 seconds per mile pace. After three minutes of running, I grabbed the handrails and straddled the treadmill belt for a one-minute recovery. And Brett Kirby, the head physiologist in the Nike Sports Research Lab, pricked my finger to measure the lactate in my blood. Then they increased the treadmill speed by one kilometer per hour, and I jumped back on. Also, I had to wear a mask over my face to measure the amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide I was inhaling and exhaling. Trust me, wearing something like that while you run is not pleasant. And I'll admit, I wasn't in the best shape when I did this test. It was right after Thanksgiving, after all. But without too much trouble, I got through five three-minute intervals. The sixth one got hard. My head was pulsing, and Brett kept having to prick my finger in a new spot to get even one drop of blood. I imagined all of it rushing away from my fingertips toward my racing heart. By the time the treadmill got up to 15 kilometers per hour, which is 6.26 per mile pace, I was in a very dark place. One last effort, okay? Ready? Three, two, one. When you're ready, go. And that's when the wheels started to come off. Go for as long as you can, okay? Come on, mate. 45 seconds gone. That's a quarter of the way through. Go for as long as you can. Okay? You can't make it hands on the side and stop. How are you Good running. Well done. Hang on in there. Working hard. That's great. Come on, David. Come on, David. Come on, David. You've done 90 seconds now. Let's go for at least another 30 if we can. Come on, David, hang in there. Come on. 20 seconds, we'll get you to two minutes. Five to get there. About for two minutes. Hang on in if you can. Enough, well done. Good. Good stuff. So yeah, I only got two minutes into the seventh stage before hitting the wall. Although I did spend enough time in the red zone to get all the data we needed. I felt dreadful and invigorated all at once. These tests are strange. People are cheering for you, trying to get you to go somewhere your body doesn't want to go, and then to stay there as long as you can. And if you're at all competitive, as I am, you don't want to let them down. I wanted to ace this test, even though there really is no such thing. My fitness level was what it was, and once I hit my ceiling, there was nowhere else to go. The next day, as Eliud Kipchoge, one of the three elites on the Breaking Two team, was finishing his own treadmill test, I met with Andy in the Innovation Kitchen to go over my results. Um, your VO2 max was 46.8 mils per kilogram per minute, which is pretty good. Just, just FYI, the, the last time I took a VO2 max test, it was a while ago, it was in 1994, and it was 68. 
So I've, is that is that a normal drop off? Your age. Yeah, I think that's actually quite a high score. Yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, that's great. Okay, right here is where exercise science can get confusing and loaded up with all kinds of acronyms and jargon. But part of my job as guinea pig is to hopefully demystify it. So VO2 max is a measure of how much oxygen we can deliver to our working muscles during intense exercise. To borrow a metaphor from Econ 101, aerobic science is all about supply and demand, and oxygen is the commodity. VO2 max is the supply side of the equation. Or if you hated economics like I did, you can think of it as the size of your car's engine. The bigger it is, the faster you can drive. As a runner, the more oxygen you can supply, the faster and longer you can run. So the higher your VO2 max, the better. It changes over time. And as you heard, I was bummed that mine had fallen so much from when I took a VO2 max test when I was 26. But I was surprised to learn that my score 46.8 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute of exercise actually put me in the excellent to superior category for my age, which is 49. By the way, going forward, I'm going to leave out those metric qualifiers and just use raw scores. Trust me, it will be easier to follow. Okay, the two other key measurements the treadmill test captured were running economy, mine was 215, and lactate threshold. Mine was 10 kilometers per hour, or 939 per mile pace. More on those in a second. But first, I was eager to know. So which of those variables, if any, can I improve between now and and my marathon this spring? Well, hopefully all of them. It depends what kind of fitness you're in at the moment. The thing that tends to be a little bit more robust is the VO2 max, because that tends to be high when you're actually quite young and will gradually fall with time. It kind of goes alongside your maximal heart rate. But on the other hand, if you're not at your full fitness at the moment, there may be still some gains you can make there. Economy does continue to, to improve over many years. Um, but if you're a regular runner, it may be that there's, there's less potential there in, you know, over the next six months or so. But the thing that's really acutely tra- changed by your training status is your lactate profile and the sustainable fraction of your VO2 max. So we've got your lactate threshold and what I call your lactate turn point as well, which I can show you. Again, this is confusing stuff, so let's break it down. Running economy is kind of the flip side of VO2 max. It's a measure of how much oxygen our bodies require during intense exercise. It's the demand side of the equation. Again, think of it in automotive terms. You don't want a gas guzzler. You want a car that gets the most miles per gallon. But unlike VO2 max, with running economy, you want a low score. The lower your score, the more efficient you are. Mine was 215. 200 to about 225 is considered average, and elites are often measured at about 160. Zersene Tedese, one of the three Nike runners chasing the sub-2 marathon, was measured at 150, believed to be the lowest ever recorded. My running economy likely isn't going to budge much. That's because I've been running my entire adult life, and my body has pretty much established how many miles it gets per gallon. And finally, the treadmill test measured my lactate threshold. Now, when you exercise, your muscles produce a byproduct called lactate, which contains lactic acid. When you exercise at or below your lactate threshold, which is a pretty moderate intensity, any lactate in your muscles is cleared by your body before it can build up. Again, my lactate threshold was 10 kilometers per hour, or 939 per mile pace. But equally important is the lactate turn point, which is when lactate builds up in your muscles faster than your body can clear it. This kicks in at a higher intensity, and when it does, lactic acid is dumped into your bloodstream. Your muscles can't contract as efficiently, and you slow down. You also feel terrible. My lactate turn point was 13 kilometers per hour, or 725 per mile pace. So if I run faster than 725 pace, I'm in what the Nike guys call severe intensity mode. In other words, a supremely uncomfortable pace I can hold only for a short time. To run a sub-330 marathon and qualify for Boston, I will need to average just under 8 minutes per mile, over 26.2 miles. That's a long time to run sub-8s, at least for me, especially since my lactate turn point, where my wheels begin to come off, is only about 30 seconds per mile faster than that. In fact, when the Nike crew rolled up all these numbers, there was some not-so-great news. My predictive analytics, as they call them, suggests that, at least as of November 30th, when I took my treadmill test, 
I would be able to run a 350 marathon. That's a far cry from a 330, let alone a 327. But here's the good news about the whole lactate profile thing. As Andy said earlier, you can improve it. With the right training, which for me will include plenty of running just below or faster than that critical 725 pace, I will eventually be able to run longer, faster, and more comfortably at any given speed. I asked Phil Skiba, a sports med physician and another consultant on the Breaking 2 project, to help me understand this. So, so the thing to think about is that we think about both your maximum speed and the speed that you can hold for a long time. Okay? Um, as we improve uh, your training, as we improve your quote-unquote lactate profile, what will happen is that although your maximum may not move very much, your ability to hold some percentage of that maximum will improve. So let's say um, if we, if at, at 80% of your maximum, you might last at this point you know, 20 minutes. We might be able to change that so that you can hold it for double that or triple that. So what kind of workouts are you going to have me start doing? Just generally, what's going to be the, the approach? So there, there are three key workouts every week. There is a long run. But the important part about the long run is not just that you're putting in the miles, is that you have some quality associated with it. So during that long run, we're going to see to it that you do 10, 20 minute intervals at your goal race pace, okay, which would be more of sort of a, a tempo-ish run. But the idea is to get you, um, they will improve your fitness, but they'll also get you used to running that speed. The next most important run is what's called the threshold run. That'll be done about your 10K pace. So we'll send you out for maybe a 45 minute run where you'll run 10 to 15 minute blocks um, at about that pace. We'll start out slower, we'll, you know, lower than that. We'll start you out with 800s and then lengthen them over time. And then the, the third common workout you're gonna do is an interval workout. We'll have you run a series of probably 200s to start with and then build, build you up to say 400s and 600s at closer to your 5K or even a little bit faster than that pace. And that's gonna try and build that VO2 max back up closer to where you used to be. So there it is, a blueprint for how the Nike crew will help me qualify for Boston. The idea, at least physiologically, is pretty simple. To raise my aerobic ceiling a bit, if possible, again, that's my VO2 max, but more importantly, to get to the point where I can run at a higher percentage of that maximum and sustain that pace for a longer period of time. And that's all about improving my lactate threshold. So roughly, how many days a week of running, how many miles per week do you think, especially how, during the heaviest I mean, how phase? Many, how many miles a week are you doing now? Right now, I'm between 15 and 20. Okay, yeah. So, you know, the, the important thing will probably be to get you up into at least the 35 to 40 mile range, um, build that long run up to 18 to 19 miles probably with, with a fair bit of quality associated with that, um, and then the other mileage split up between the other runs. Um, but that's, we'll know more once we start tracking your runs and see how you respond because the goal is not to train you as much as we can possibly train you. Our goal is to train you as little as we need to to get you where you need to be. You know, but we risk an injury the harder we push you. And really, the thing that's most commonly associated with an injury is not intensity, it's, it's miles. And so our, our goal is to make you run the minimum miles necessary to get as fast as you need to be. I like the sound of that. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> and since you brought up injury, that yeah. is a problem that I've had in my most recent marathon training phases. You know, in my, my aging 49-year-old body and, you know, cr crazy life, probably don't get enough rest. Uh, I'm getting better about it, but haven't done enough cross-training, haven't warmed up enough before training runs, haven't cooled down properly, consistently. Um, how, how concerned are you about me staying healthy through a marathon training phase? If we do this in a smart way, you really shouldn't be too concerned about that. You know, the most important thing to think about is it's load over time that causes the injury. And so the most common things, say overuse injuries, stress fractures, things like that, come from people who have what I like to call the Ferrari engine in a Volkswagen body. They've got quite a good amount or good aerobic potential. The aerobic systems adapt in a matter of days to weeks to training. But the connective tissues, the bone, the muscle, the, the tendon, the, the connective structures, those adapt on a period of weeks to months. And so we run the risk, if we don't build you slowly, say less than 10% per week in terms of mileage, we run the risk of giving you the Ferrari engine of the Volkswagen body and breaking something. Yeah, okay. With that blueprint in mind, I headed home with just one other thing to figure out. Where am I going to attempt this BQ? 
For help deciding, I turned to Megan Keita, who, among other things, oversees races and places here at Runner's World. She also has been trying to qualify for Boston for, in her words, forever. So I knew she'd have a short list of events that would likely hit all my criteria. Namely, my goal race couldn't be too hot because I do terrible in the heat. I obviously wanted a fast course, but I also wanted something with some ups and downs. I live in a pretty hilly area here in eastern Pennsylvania, and I get kind of bored and feel more beat up when I run on pancake flat courses. If possible, I wanted to stick relatively close to home, and the race had to come on the last weekend of April or later to coincide with my training plan. With all that in mind, Megan stopped by my office to share her top five picks. If you want to keep it local, the New Jersey Marathon is that weekend. It's out um, in the Asbury Park area, April 30th. Um, That, however, is a really flat course. It's right by the water, so it has potential to be windy. But of the ones you could drive to with relative ease from here in the Lehigh Valley, that, in my to my knowledge, has the least chance of being oppressively hot. And I don't love pancake flat, but if you prepare for it, you can do well there. You just need to kind of tailor your training routes to accommodate that. Okay, so that's a contender. Yes. Strong contender, mm-hmm. I would I would say. Yeah. What else should be on the list to consider, do you think? Providence in Rhode Island. I'm not sure how far of a drive that is, but because it's a little farther north and close to water, I feel like it would be less likely to be really hot. So that's one that I could, you know, drive up to the day before, the morning, the morning before. Okay. Um, So the Eugene Marathon is also on May 7th, and, you know, that's obviously a flight away. But that race, again, has less of a chance of being sweltering that time of the year. It's the Pacific Northwest, so you get you know, a little bit more of a moderate climate. You don't have this high chance of, you know, bright sunshine and humidity. And I've heard Eugene's a great race. It's it's pretty flat. It's obviously in the running capital of the country. You yeah. finish at Hayward Field. It just sounds like a really cool experience. So, you know, that's that's on my bucket list. And I think it's a pretty fast race too. Okay. Is there is there one in mid-May that we should think about? Yes, I actually have two more to recommend, both of which I have run in the past. Um, So the first one is the Pocono Run for the Red Marathon. That is on May 21st. That is probably about an hour to an hour 15 minutes drive from the Lehigh Valley, so pretty easy. Um, Obviously the weather is a potential issue here. It can be very hot and sunny or it could not be. You just don't know what you're going to get in mid-May in Pennsylvania. The other thing is that the course is very, very downhill in the beginning for, you know, I think the first mile is a gradual uphill, and then you hit a downhill that lasts seven miles, and it's, like, blistering downhill. Um, I ran it back in 2011, and I had never previously experienced the the beat up feeling that your quads get after a serious downhill like that and it was rough for me was it hot the year you ran it was warmer than i wanted it to be it was probably about 60 degrees but overcast all right okay so we've got the vermont city marathon which is in burlington vermont so not a short trip um it's always the sunday of memorial day weekend so Um, And that's another race that could be hot or not. Um, The year I ran it, it was hot. It was probably 75, and it was really rough. But Tish has run it several times. The last time she ran it, which I think was the year after I did, uh, it was 40 degrees and raining. So you don't know what you're going to get, but it's a really great course. It's very spectator-friendly. I don't know if you're planning to bring your family with you, but... Um, they can stand in one place and see you five times. So it's like a clover-shaped course. Oh, wow, that's cool. It, it, it's a really cool course, and it's a really cool town and could definitely be conducive to fast times if you get a good weather day. Okay. And that would also give me a little bit more time to train if I need it. Right. right if something comes up. What do you think I should do? What's your recommendation? 
Okay, well, if it were me and I didn't want to fly, I would probably try New Jersey. Um, and part of the reason for that is because it's really close to home and I haven't run it before. And if I was willing to fly, I would absolutely do Eugene. After obsessing over the pros and cons, I actually went off the board. I have signed up for the Bayshore Marathon in Traverse City, Michigan. It's the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. It's pretty far north, so the weather is likely to be good. The course is beautiful and has plenty of variation. And I grew up in Michigan. My whole family still lives there. And since it's over a holiday weekend, I'm hoping for a big cheering section. With my goal race locked in, my next step will be to meet with two other Nike coaches in New York City to undergo more tests, including a functional movement screening that will reveal any strength or flexibility imbalances so I can hopefully avoid injuries. I will also get that training plan locked in. At some point, I will also be given prototypes of whatever speed-enhancing shoes and apparel Nike dreams up for its elite sub-two-hour trio. Like them, I will be looking to shave seconds wherever possible. Our quests are actually more similar than you would think. There is a 2.4% gap between the current marathon world record, which is 202.57, and 159.59, which is what they hope to run at some point in the next few months. Eerily, there is also a 2.4% gap between my PR, 324.59, and 329.59, which would finally earn me that BQ. It's kind of weird, right? So here we go. I'm really excited, and we will have lots more on both moonshots, mine and Nike's, in future episodes. But I won't lie, I'm also feeling a bit iffy about all of this. It's a big commitment to train this way. And I have three kids, a demanding job, and I don't exactly have extra time for 40-mile weeks and all the cross-training I know that I will need to do to stay healthy. And marathon training is hard. It's supposed to be hard. I like that it's hard. But it also feels pretty vulnerable to do all of this so publicly. <laughs> if I fail to BQ again, it will somehow be more permanent, certainly more glaring. I sometimes catch myself thinking, can I really do this? Do I really have time for this? But that is what is known as negative self-talk. And it's one of the many, many things the Nike experts will help me improve over the coming months. And I will, as I make my way toward Michigan and, eventually, to Boston. We'll have an update for you on an even bigger moonshot the attempt to break the two-hour marathon barrier in an upcoming episode. If you missed our initial coverage of Nike's Breaking 2 project, check out episode 33 of the Runner's World Show. Next up, Tish Hamilton's interview with Coach Jenny. Jenny Hadfield has been a columnist for runnersworld.com for 10 years. She's also a coach, a certified personal trainer, and co-author of the Running for Mortals and Marathoning for Mortals book series. Jenny is probably best known for being a truly down-to-earth, approachable coach whose practical, realistic advice resonates with busy runners. It's the kind of guidance that has made her Ask Coach Jenny column a perennial favorite on her website for a decade. Just before the new year, executive editor Tish Hamilton talked with Coach Jenny about how she got her start in running after initially hating it, her personal running philosophy, her favorite success story as a coach, and finally, her tips on targeting meaningful goals and sticking to them. So, here's something I'm curious about, Jenny. Mm -hmm. How did you get started running? Ooh. Well, it's, uh, I got started running... <laughs> Kind of the hard way. I used to play sports in grade school and played basketball and played volleyball and used to hate running because it was always used as a form of punishment. 
And so if you missed a volleyball serve or a basketball layup, they would make you go run. They would make you go do those darn suicides up and down the court. And I was always presented in a negative. So I had this mental block for years and I was doing an internship at GE Medical Systems in their corporate fitness center in Milwaukee and in the fitness field and all excited. And I walk in on my first day of my internship and all the fitness center employees are runners. And I'm thinking, oh great, they're gonna make me, they're gonna make me run. And sure enough, we sat down for the orientation and they're like, oh, we're gonna do this 5K in the fall. You've gotta do it with us. And I'm like, no, I don't wanna do that. I'll do your errands. I'll take care of your kids. I'll scrub the bathroom floor, the toothbrush, whatever, I don't wanna run. So they convinced me, they said, give me three weeks of your life and just trust us. And if you don't like it after that point, then you can stop. And I gave them three weeks, I agreed. And what we did was we went out during our lunch hour and they started me off with walking. And we would have a conversation and it was fun and we'd get done with 30 or 45 minutes. And I think, gosh, that that seemed like a lot of fun. Let's do that again. And we did that again and we did that again. And this was over a period of about three or four months. And they started to sprinkle in seconds of running and then minutes of running. And then before you know it, I was running 30 minutes. And I, I thought I could tackle the world at that point and ran the race. And I was almost last and I was beaten by a 72 year old man and they announced it on the PA system, but none of that mattered because I was able to run and I never thought I could. So that's how I got started. And from there, I just got bitten by the bug real hard. Did you, did you get bitten by the bug during that process or later on? I did. I did. I ended up um, getting doing my internship. I got my master's degree and went on to work at a couple of different facilities, uh, NutraSuite in Chicago and then uh, Discover Card. I was the fitness director for years at Discover Card fitness center and I started doing 5Ks and then I would do 10Ks and half marathons and then I did my first marathon, the Chicago Marathon in 93 and the employees would come into my office and ask me, how, how, how can I train for a marathon? Now this is 90s, right? We don't have Google, we don't have anything online, none of that existed. And so they were trying to find ways that they could squeeze in their training into their busy lives with their family, with their kids, and all the activities that they enjoy doing. So yeah, I got the bug right then and definitely fell in love with it. So different coaches have different coaching philosophies. Mm -hmm. And what makes you coach Jenny? Like what's the your uh, philosophy? The foundation of my philosophy I call flow-based training, which is follow your body, don't follow your watch, uh, look for balance. So it's a whole philosophy around tuning into who you are as a runner, what what's going on in the moment, how your body is responding, and how can you weave this into your life? I, I love that concept um, of, of making it work with your life. Um, tell me, <laughs> why does it work? It, it works because it's customized. Everybody's used to customizing things now. It's so the number one philosophy with, with me when I start with a runner is to make sure I understand who they are and what they can do, what their current fitness level is, and then evolve it from there. And you, you can't do that as well with a, with a template-based program. You can follow it and, and try and modify along the way, but the runner's mentality is if they're following something on paper, they're going to try and catch up or they're going to try and skip ahead or get those miles in because they want to make sure that they finish that program. And what flow-based training program starts off with is who are you? Where are you at right now fitness-wise? Let's customize a program based on that. And then how much time can you dedicate not only to the training, but the recovery process as well? And then from there, it's just teaching them how to look for ways to not only balance their life during the week, but balance their training. And everybody's different based on our age and our, our fitness levels and what's going on in our life. So... Okay, so can you tell us um, some of your favorite success stories from your flow philosophy? Oh, my one of my favorites, my my all time favorite so far on the top of the list is Ismail. Uh, he was a runner that came to me. He had done 
four marathons and was successful in his first. And then his second, third, and fourth were slower and slower and slower. He's trying to qualify for Boston. I believe his Boston time was a 320 or is a 320. He's still working his way uh, in getting there. And he was broken when he came to me. He was hurt. He was fatigued. He was frustrated. He was humbled. And he had just gotten done with finishing a race out in in California. And his race time was 45 minutes slower than his first one. So he was not going anywhere quickly. He was burnt out and hurt. So we had to ease back and have him do some more light cross training so that he could first recover. Then from there, we started to build in more towards marathon training and get some distance, but we worked on the flow of his week. He was doing high intensity everything. He loves high intensity stuff. Some of his favorite things, he was doing boot camp. Uh, We pulled out during the marathon season because he wasn't able to do those things at a low intensity manner. And I really wanted him to focus on the higher intensity uh, with his running, not with cross training. So we pulled those things out. We replaced it with some boxing that he really enjoyed, that he could modify his intensity and keep it at a moderate or easy level. I taught him how to run easy because that's really hard for him so that his body could get in distance aerobically and not trash his body every single time by doing too much too fast. So we eventually, it took about three weeks to, to right the ship and get him healthy and get him into a training schedule. And the first marathon that he did, he shed seven minutes off his time. And all we did in that training season was to do some light interval work, mostly long runs that are an easy effort and balance out the intensity of his workouts. Just by that, he was able to take off over 50 minutes of his last marathon time and seven minute PR on a hot day. It was 80 degrees on that day. Wow, so, that's a good result. Oh, it was unbelievable. He was so excited. And that wasn't even a hardcore Boston qualifying marathon plan. That was just, let's right the ship. Let's get you healthy. Let's teach you how to run slow, run long, and pepper in a little bit of speed work. And from there now, now he's working towards, um, he's in his recovery season right now, but he's working towards his next marathon. And he continues to, his last marathon, he shed another five or six minutes uh, off of his time. So he's getting there in little increments. And along the way, he's really learning how to tune into his body, tune into his breath. He was able to achieve so many successes in one season. Typically with a runner, I'll have one success a season. It's, you know, it's a slow, gradual process, which is normal. But for him... He went all in, he went all in and had so many improvements in one season. It was really it's really an exciting story. Right. And you're judging improvements not just on time of the time, the result of the race, but also on his ability to dial back uh, in workouts. Absolutely. His ability to I had him go from pacing numerically, pacing himself by a number, by a 10K time, to pacing by his breath. So what he learned during that season, I break it down into very simplistic three zones, yellow, orange, red. Yellow is conversational, aerobic, or I call it zone one or two is yellow. Zone three is orange, which is more moderate, more of tempo, more you can start to hear your breath, but you can still talk in words. And then red is you can't talk at all and you're looking at your watch to see how long you have to go. So taught him those three zones, kept it to colors, yellow, orange, red. All I want you to do when you run is do a yellow run for your long run. You should be able to have a conversation in full sentences. If you can't talk in full sentences, you are not running easy. So slow it down. Then I would have him do a tempo. Tempo, I want you at the top end of your orange zone. You should hear your breath. It should be harder, but you still should be able to get out a few words and talk. If you can't talk, you're going too hard. And then red, you're breathing really hard. You're pushing hard. 
that's the red zone. So I taught him all of those little things about how to tune into your breath, how to pace yourself by your breath and why you want to do that, why that's so important. You've got to be diligent about what you're doing. The purpose of every single workout is so important and it doesn't have to be complicated. I have so many people that come to me that are so confused because there's so much going on with electronics and apps and things like that. So it doesn't have to be that hard. It really goes back to those three zones, yellow, orange, red, and then pacing himself. I had him uh, several times during the season do some practice dress rehearsal races, some 10Ks, a half marathon, and then had him, I'm a big advocate for negative splits, negative splits based on effort not negative splits necessarily based on pace. So taking out the first half of the race in that yellow zone and then picking it up to the orange and picking it up to the red to the finish. And he was able to to hone those skills, which really makes a, a significant difference because if you think about it, you could be incredible, have incredible fitness and ready to go and be fit enough to qualify for Boston, the weather's perfect, everything's going your way. And if you take it out the first 10K way too hard, it doesn't matter, (laughs) right? You're going to crawl across the finish line. So all of those things were wrapped up into into that season and it just really took hold with him. And I'm wondering, does it, does it work as well? And do you have any examples of uh, working with someone who's coming to the sport new? So a beginner? Absolutely. I've been coaching a woman who has tried and tried and tried to learn to run and has failed in her mind every single time. And she was going out and trying to run as far as she could, as hard as she could. And you know what happens when when that happens when you're first starting out. It's not fun. Right. So, you you know, you don't want to do it. And if you think back to my story, they started me off with walking. So oftentimes, uh, like I did with this woman, I will start people with a foundational fitness program that would include strength training and some flexibility. But most importantly, it might start with walking first or run walking. And then from there, you build up the happiness scale. So when they're done with each workout, they feel good and they want to do it again. You've got to make sure that you're starting in a place that feels good rather than feeling awful because you want to be able to plant that seed so you do it again. That seed of happiness, I call it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, you know, as she built up, little by little, I started with 15 seconds of running and then she would walk for two to three minutes to catch her breath. And then we built up to 30 seconds and then 45 and very incremental changes. It didn't happen in a 10 week plan. It happened over a period of a year and she's now running 5Ks and looking at doing 10Ks next year. So she's really happy about it, but it was a slow, slower process. And once she understood how her body was adapting or how her body could adapt, she was all over it. And when you design a plan for a runner and then the runner, you know, life interferes with uh, the plan. I think this is a challenge that all runners who follow training plans faces, you know, like they, they have their training plan and they see, you know, on Tuesday, I must run six miles. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't matter if there's a blizzard and, you know, your car right. is got a flat tire and your kid is home from school and your dogs are crazy. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's, it's that type A mentality. And sometimes type Bs are like that as well. But it's, yeah, we, we have a goal. We want to achieve it. And especially if you've got a momentum going, you don't want to stop, you know? Right. Because what happens if I don't do my workout? So I get that for sure. I have that in myself as well. Oh, sure thing. (laughs) You know, you and I have been running for a long time. And as you run over a course of a longer career, um, your progress, you know, what becomes air Mm -hmm. quotes better has to change because you can't just keep getting faster and faster and faster for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. For sure. That's such a great point. I'm turning 50 in the spring and I've, I've had a lot of PRs in my life in my running career um, as a recreational runner, I should say. And I've been blessed to be able to do that. And I look at it a little differently now. I either try and go do something that's different, like a trail race or a different race to, to set a new PR Um, or this year I'm going to do climb Kilimanjaro. So that's going to be new, but in terms of all out racing pace, that's definitely slowed and I'm okay with that because I can still run and I'm still having fun with it. So I think at some point 
Um, you know, at, at first you're seeing tons of progress and you're increasing your speed and you're running longer races and it's all exciting. And then it starts to trickle. <laughs> Right, and then you then you might have a PR by two seconds or three seconds. You might not have a PR uh, for years. Um, it just depends on what kind of running and goals you have. But that's when you start to need to look for um, different ways to challenge yourself. I'm real big on aiming for a strong finish in a race because if you think about it, pace can vary based on the weather, the wind, I mean, how you're feeling on the day. And if you've invested six months of your life in a marathon training plan, and then you go to run a race and you missed your PR by 30 seconds, you walk away disappointed when really, if you finished strong and you had a solid race, there's so many things that could happen within that race that could have been positive. It's just not the clock on that day. So I really try and encourage runners to look outside just the clock and the pace and the time. That's exciting to do that. But because of the point you just made is at some point you're going to hit a, a threshold where those PRs aren't going to come as quickly. And if you if you think about elite runners, they're out to win the race. So how can you refine, redefine in your mind how you can win the race? And to me, that means finishing strong. How can I finish strong today? How can I put out my best performance versus just a PR? Right. Your best performance for that day. Right. 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 And if you think about, you know, you've got a, a, in any given race, hundreds of maybe a hundred or so elite qualified runners and they're towing the line. They're thinking, I want to win today, right? They're not thinking about, I want to run a 730 pace for mile one and a 715 for mile two. And, you know, and when they get to the finish line, they're upset because they didn't get a PR. It's often that they don't get a PR. They can win a race and, and have their slowest time. Right. If it's a hot day or there's some right. kind of variable like Boston when there was a headwind uh, that one year and times were really slow or when it's hot. And then the next year they had a, a tailwind for the whole way. It's it, you know, they tow the line thinking about the wind. We tow the line thinking about our watch. And I think we can learn from elite runners. And when we tow the line, think about your best performance on the given day. Right. And it's hard to let go of, of the watch, you know, the, with a GPS telling you every single thing mm-hmm. about every mile and every step you take mm-hmm. uh, and, and not becoming a slave to that. Um, I, I found a quote on your website that says, I'm going to quote you here, uh, we ebb and flow through peaks and valleys of energy. Move with the rhythm of your personal flow and you'll make the most out of every workout. That means running by feel rather than pace. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you can talk to us about how to run by feel. Sure, sure. And this all came up because uh, I lived through the whole start of the GPS technology. And I think it was about 2000 when the first GPS started. I can't remember the first one that I got. But then Garmin came along and the brick watch I call, it was like half came up half, almost to your elbow. It was that big. <laughs> The numbers were real big, and it was the first time you could see live in real time what your pace was. Before then, we all wore our, our Timex watches or our G-Shock watches, and all we knew was what the chrono said, right? And we might have a fancy watch that had eight laps of memory. Woo! <laughs> and so we had to, the, the legendary runners, you know, like Joan Benoit and Frank Shorter and Jeff Galloway and all those folks, they had to run by their body because all they knew was the chrono time. There was n- nothing that was telling them what their pace was. They might be on a, a track or they might know a course in their mind so they would have a reference. But stride for stride, they really didn't know what their pace was by a number. They knew what their pace was by their body and how they felt. And when the first GPS came out, and don't get me wrong, I'm a huge fan of technology. It's just we're using it wrong. When the first GPS came out in 2000, runners started looking at their watch and started following their watch rather than following their body. And that becomes a problem because now you're tuning yourself out and you have no idea what's going on in your body because you're so focused on that tempo run and I've got it. My program says I've got to run it at 10K pace and I ran a 10K pace last week. And it was the X, let's say it was 8.30 pace and it's windy out today and it's 85 degrees, but I'm going to run that tempo at 8.30, right? And a tempo is a moderate effort. Now all of a sudden you go out and you run on that day with those conditions and you're now running in your red zone. 
you're running at a very high intensity and there's consequences to that. That's not what a tempo run's all about. So now your recovery is delayed, the performance, the whole purpose of the workout is skewed because you were successful in, in hitting that number, but internally in your body, it was way too much for that day. What I find fascinating is when runners get this, it takes a little time to wean them off of following their watch. <laughs> but when they get home and they can evaluate it and they can see their progress based on how they're running and they're, most of them end up running faster along the way, it's faster on their long runs and faster overall because their body is in the right zone. They're training in the right zone. It's, it's amazing. Right. So we're in the season of setting goals for the year and looking ahead and, and figuring out, you know, what we want to do with our year ahead. And how do you help people identify the right goals for them? It's got to start with something that's authentic. Start with where you are emotionally. How are you feeling about running? How are you feeling about running the distances that you've been running? If you're burnt out, maybe you need to try something new. And once you have a good idea of where you are physically, psychologically, emotionally, then you can start looking towards, you know, 2017, the new year. What is it that I want to do? What inspires me? And I always have my runners write down three things that they want to do. Write it down on paper, put it on your fridge. And if it's still exciting for you two weeks later, you're most likely setting a good goal. If you get to that fridge two weeks later and you're like, eh, not really. <laughs> that doesn't sound so, so exciting anymore. That sounds kind of silly, actually. Just be really very realistic. When I was in uh, corporate fitness, I would see this every year. People would show up January 1st, full house. We'd open the doors at 6 a.m., line waiting down the hallway. And then four or five, six weeks later, it'd be 10 people at the door, right? Because everybody right. gets so excited. It's like a, a match strike. It's so exciting at first. And then eventually, if you don't set a goal that's achievable or realistic for where you are right now, it fizzles out three, four weeks down the road because you're burning yourself out. What is a goal that's not a race goal? So if I don't have a race on my calendar in the end of the spring, like what's a goal to help me be motivated? Great question. A goal outside of a specific race could be as simple as I'm going to run 20 miles this week. It could be about numbers. So you get that fix. Sometimes I'll, I'll do, I'll equate my cross training to make it easier. Um, and I'll say, I'm going to do 20, 25 miles this week. And Running miles, walking miles, hiking miles. If I get out on my fat bike and ride on the trails, every 10 minutes of my cross training is one mile. So everything's in miles for me. And my goal for that week or for that month is to hit the, the weekly goal that I set for my miles. So every Monday I set a new goal based on my life, based on the craziness of my life and based on my fitness level. So that's a real... A very motivating way and simple way to, to motivate just on your fitness level. Uh, it could be based on experience. So I'm going to hit two yoga classes every week in January because I want to get back into my cross training again. Uh, I'm going to run with a running group at a running store or a running club in my area uh, once a week and make sure I connect socially And because this is a challenging time of year to get outside and run break the hibernation. So it could be wrapped up in a lot of different things outside of just setting a, a goal based on a race. Right. I like your, your mileage goal because that could also work with just minutes. You know, you could say, right. I want to make sure I move at least 30 minutes a day or something. Absolutely. And then you can, you can supplement that with, we're real big now on counting steps. And, you know, I went from the fitness field to more writing and home-based work where I sit on my butt a lot more, <laughs> more than I used to or care to. So I've got, you know, a, a tracker that tracks my steps. And as silly as that sounds, it really is helpful to track that because if you're inactive all day long, that's another thing that you can add to your fitness and health regimen is outside of my fitness workouts, how many steps, how much am I moving physically during the day? Because as we sit more and more, it's really unhealthy for our posture, uh, for our musculature, for our health. Yeah, and that's and it's a really good reminder to just to just 
moved because like you, I often sit at the desk all day and I'll mm-hmm. like the end of the day, I'm like, all I've done is 2,000 steps. And sure, mm-hmm. I ran three miles, but, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work if all I do is sit for the rest of the day. Right, right. It balances itself out, right? It starts to take away from if you're sitting all day. So, yeah. It's harder to stay motivated. Mm-hmm. So how do you help people stay motivated? It's great to set goals, but if you have a goal that, let's say you're going to do a 10K in in April um, and you're not running right now and you start off running four miles, uh, you're going to burn yourself out in a matter of one or two weeks because your body's going to be sore, you're going to be fatigued. So really being realistic with where you are, set that goal if you know you've got the fitness to back it up, that you can put a time frame on it. If you don't, then keep it open-ended. But give yourself plenty of runway to build up. Ease into it so that you get to that end of that workout like I did and think, gosh, that was really fun. I want to do that again. That's what you want to nurture. Right. I think you really have to be honest about where you are at that moment, not where you were mm-hmm. in November or after you ran the New York City Marathon, but like where you are at that moment. And that's hard. That, it's that's very not hard. A, it's humbling. You know, you got to take your ego and put, put it to the side and, and really be honest with yourself. And I think it's hard for runners also to, you know, to do something that's so some kind of cross training activity. Here's an example. I went to uh, my first yoga class in years and years and years. Um, I went to it last Monday and I've now been two times and and it's a 45 minute yoga class. And, you know, I came out really sore the next day. I'm like, oh, my God, what's wrong with my (laughs) hip? What's wrong with my knees? I'm falling apart. It's like, oh, right. I haven't done yoga in forever. Mm -hmm. And I went and took a 45 minute class. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. It really is. I mean, we're fit as runners. We've got great cardio, um, but it's specific to the sport. It doesn't mean that we're not healthy or fit. It just means if you don't go to do something else, whether it's cycling or yoga or strength class, your, your muscle, you're moving your body in a different way and you're activating muscles in a different way. So it's, it's like starting all over again. Right. And you have to check your runner ego at the door because you, you go in going like, I got this. I'm a fit person. Right. No problem. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You can find links to Coach Jenny's latest columns on runnersworld.com slash audio. Coming up on The Kick, a roundup of the week's running news. It's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, so we all know that um, there are going to be primetime football games throughout the season, but fortunately, last Thursday, we actually had a primetime marathon kit. Did you stay up for it? I'm more of a night owl. I don't know if you did. Thursday night marathon. Yeah, it was in Dubai. Um, That one kicked off around 9.30 Eastern time. For this race, and it was actually one worth staying up for and following, either on social media or trying to watch the race online. Yeah, I was uh, I was trying to follow along along social media. Um, it wasn't exactly on NBC. No, but, but it's you, still you, prime time. You could find the race. Um, it was interesting because of the main runner in the race, Kananisa Bakale. He was shooting for the world record. That would be two hundred two fifty seven set by Dennis Cometo, um, and he had the credentials for it. He is the world record holder in the 5,000 meters and the 10,000 meters, and he owns the second fastest marathon time ever. But he kind of said going in that, I'm going to shoot for this. I feel in really good shape. Yeah, isn't that – I feel like that's kind of unusual and really cool – Oftentimes, elites won't really announce. They'll stay quiet. Yeah, they won't announce their intention, other than the fact that it's obvious they all want to win. But um, going for a world record and very publicly saying it really Mm -hmm. built up anticipation for the race. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't go his way (laughs) in the race. Right at the start, um, he kind of tangled up with the runners around him and fell to the ground. So that threw him off right away. And then the lead pack, they were at world record pace for the first half of the race. They are like a second off. And he couldn't really hang with them. He dropped off at about 22 oh, kilometers. Um, his left leg wasn't doing too good, so he pulled off. He didn't finish the race. But it did stay interesting after that. Right. I guess this is kind of like uh, 
you know, a member of the Packers guaranteeing the Super Bowl win at the beginning of the season. Yeah, it didn't quite, or at the start of the postseason, and it just didn't quite work through, and then you can't show up in didn't, the didn't NFC quite, Championship game. Didn't quite happen. But like know? I said, the rest of the race did stay interesting. People were on pace, and actually his countryman, Tamarit Tola, he he ran a fantastic race. He ran a 204.11. Not only is that a course record in Dubai, but he also became the ninth fastest marathoner ever. So kind of out of nowhere, he sneaks into the top 10 and becomes one of the top runners in the world in the marathon. Primetime marathoning needs to become more of a thing. We, I would love to see that. Um, Kananisa, he's going to be back at the London Marathon trying to you know, shoot for that sub-world record again. It's a good course kind of for it. Um, so if he's healthy, you know, he maybe he'll make the prediction again. Okay, so moving on from world records to um, KOMs. Um, Kit Fox, you've been working on a story with Strava. You should tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so... Um, and first things first, what are KOMs? And if people don't know, what is Strava? Okay, well, Strava is one of the many fantastic services that will track your run, mm-hmm. how many miles you've gone, where you've run. And it's just kind of actually this big social media network, mm-hmm. but for runners and cyclists. Mm-hmm. And... Um, KOMs are king of the mountains, um, and so d- different segments uh, that Strava's tracked, they track who the fastest person is to get up top of this hill. We've got a couple um, segments that are- We have uh, you, several around here. Several around here. It gets highly competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, this is a little bit different. Um, so we partnered with Strava. They've got all this data about um, all these great places that people run, so I asked them to provide me essentially- the most popular running routes in the country. Okay, and you started with, you went with the top 20, the biggest cities in the country. Exactly, because um, uh, if you just w- did the top 20 most popular running routes, it would be like ev- New York. <laughs> it would be like a couple blocks in New York. Yeah, it's because it would be based off a of population. So actually, um, we picked the top 20 biggest metropolitan areas in the country and found the two most popular runs in each. Some parts are really interesting. And sticking with New York, that was one of the more fascinating clusters that we saw. Yeah, so I assumed, I think everybody assumed that um, Central Park's big loop, um, which Mm -hmm. is the 6.1-mile loop around the outside of Central Park, would be the most popular Mm -hmm. run because— Who doesn't run in Central Park if you live in New York? Uh, No, I mean, according to Strava's data— that's the second most popular run in the city. The most popular is actually Prospect Park down in Brooklyn. Wow. Um, which was surprising and, and really cool kind of to see, you know, Brooklyn get a shout out. Yeah, that'll be uh, very big to our producer, Sylvia, yeah, who lives in Brooklyn. It seems yeah. the, the hipsters are uh, are really going for it down <laughs> And they love Park. their Strava. Uh, what else stood out to you on there? Well, I mean, I, I have to give a shout out to my personal favorite run in the country, uh, the Wakefront Trail in Chicago. Right okay. along Lake Michigan, beautiful. I've done many a long run. I did one weekend run there when I visited in November. It's a fantastic run. Yeah, so that was uh, the most popular route in Chicago. Um, another favorite one of mine, just because I'm from Denver, is uh, Cheeseman Park. Great name, uh, but why is it a great run? Yes, it's the second most popular run in Denver. It's this beautiful park in Denver, but um, fantastic little detail. It used to be a cemetery. Oh. Um up until the early 1900s, and allegedly the bodies are still buried there. So it's a little bit haunted, could make your run a little bit more exciting. Um, but it's beautiful now. It's be- it's gorgeous now. Um, if you run at night, though, uh, you might pick up the pace just a little bit. Okay. Um, but anyway, so Strava's actually provided us with 40 routes, and what they've done is they've made them into segments so that you can easily um, hook them up to your phone if you have a Strava account and you know know exactly where to run if you want to try out one of these runs. And they're working on an update themselves that'll be released early next week, which is also when our story is going to come out. So this is a little bit of a preview, so look for our story about the most popular routes next week. Okay, so finishing up the kick this week, Kit, um, let's move from uh, places runners really want to go, all these great running routes that Strava has told us about to a place runners either kind of love or hate, and that's the Race Expo. You know, I like a good Race Expo. Yeah, especially if Runner's World is there. You should come by, say hi. Yeah, we're If friendly. you see one booth, you should see Runner's World and yeah. take a selfie with Bart Yasso. Exactly. So I might be part of the uh, rare contingent that 
enjoys a good race expo. Okay. Um, That's so funny. one of my recommendations is actually this might seem weird, but they're open to the public. So instead of uh, you can never really truly enjoy a good race expo the day before a race because you're nervous, you want to get off your feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you live in a big city and you're not running the big marathon there, you can go and just uh, get a bunch of sweet running swag, um, often at a lot of discounted prices. Uh, the other thing that is my main tip, even if you are racing, sample everything. 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 Get every – try every type of compression sock. I love the, um, the like, yogurts that are usually there because they're nice and viscous mm-hmm. and they really settle yeah. in your stomach well, especially um, mixed with – usually there's a beer truck that's there that you can sample beer. So you Oftentimes. get the yogurt to settle and then you get that carbonation to kind of mix with the dairy. Mm-hmm. Recipe for an amazing race. And let me tell you, was an amazing race. First year of Chicago, I did it when I decided to sample everything. Is that true? It's very true. Wow. Yeah. But for everyone else, we I should say we do not recommend that. Don't do that. <laughs> do not try every single thing. Don't hold, eat- it, hold it for later and after yeah. the race if yeah. you really want yeah. to. Okay, so there's some good and bad. You should check out the list on runnersworld.com. But the last thing is is really pretty smart. Most of the big race expos are in these convention centers in downtown. So there's likely a bar nearby. So you can carbo load right after um, and just get that experience out of the way. Or before, make it a little bit more fun. Or before, before you go in. Mm -hmm. All right, so thanks for coming down, doing the kick one more time this week. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Okay, that's almost it for this week's show. Just one quick thing. In a future episode, we will have Shoes and Gear editor Jeff Dengate on to answer all your pressing shoe questions. So if you have always wondered how you can tell when your running shoes should be retired for good, or if you have puzzled over the logic of tread patterns, email your queries to us at rwaudio at rodale.com. That's R-O-D-A-L-E.com. Or you can reach out to us via our Facebook page, Runner's World Audio, or tweet us at RW Audio. Okay, that really is a wrap. Thank you for your comments and ratings. We are always using your feedback to create a better show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Alex Ward, and Brian Dalek. We hope you'll join us next week for a killer workout in Central Park. We're going to start with a dynamic warm-up. I'm joined by Adam and Holly, you guys know them, two of the best trainers in the universe, and this is called Hit for the Holidays. You guys ready to rock it? All right, let's do it. You won't want to miss it, so thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.